0: among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear what can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you." This is the word of the Lord.
1: I am so excited for this chapter because it's the weaving together of all that we've been doing for the last 12 weeks. Now, actually, if you look at it on the calendar, we've been in this series for about 14 or 15 weeks. There's only 13 chapters. We took a few breaks. And so this has been a long journey coming. And if you haven't been with us during our series in Hebrews, I want to recap the, the main structure of the book so that we would be able to understand this. The most important thing that I could give to you as advice about how to read the Bible, how to inform your Christian walk by the scriptures is to read things deeply in context. That, that is, the scriptures are not a trivial book that can be encountered haphazardly. And they're not just spiritual devotions to encourage you during quiet times. They are instructions for godly living in every area of life. And this chapter specifically, along with the whole book, gives us a worldview of how the Christian should understand the future. Now, it might not be immediately apparent, but I'm convinced that this book or this chapter, has one of the most misunderstood and mistranslated, misinterpreted verses in all of the New Testament. And if you've been with us, that might not come as a surprise. Maybe you caught it while we were uh, listening to the reading. But I want to convince you today of something that I'm seeing throughout all of the New Testament, and it's very important to how we as Christians view our role and mission in a culture that is increasingly rejecting the wisdom of God. I'm convinced that we are, in America, we are beginning to reap the fruit of a defeatist view of what the gospel is supposed to be doing over time in the nations of men. And that defeatist view is like a self-fulfilling prophecy testifying to its own truth, even though it is actually a lie. And this verse that we're going to look at, uh, in verse 14, is really building on everything that we've been seeing throughout the entire book of Hebrews. So really briefly, I want to just discuss Hebrews chapter by chapter, just highlighting one or two things in each chapter. At chapter 1, we saw the Hebrew writer begin his letter and epistle with an exhortation to not reject the Christ. And he shows the demonstration of Christ being the pinnacle, the preeminent, the one who was the fulfillment of everything that God had spoken to the people of God over time. Everything that the prophets, the apostles, the, the patriarchs, the kings, the judges, every one of them testified concerning Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, in his coming, was a perfect Messiah, the only Son of God, and was able, therefore, because of his righteousness, to make a right sacrifice." The writer then weaves in a discussion of all the covenant sacrificial systems as they pointed to Christ and the reality, which is greater than the shadow. So the writer is saying he's interacting with everything in Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. He's interacting with those books and showing how each of them was merely a pointer to a greater reality. And this is somewhat confusing to the natural mind, but what the writer is saying is that the physical temple was less glorious than the true eternal temple. Not as if it is less glorious because it is made of earth and therefore earthly things are bad, but rather because God had always intended to have a temple built out of people. Which is what we see unfold in the New Testament, especially 1 Peter, uh, Corinthians, etc. So the writer in chapters 3 and 4 is giving warnings against apostasy, showing the greatness of the high priest. And then we really see this come into focus in chapters 8 and 9 that Jesus, as a greater priest and not a priest of the order of Aaron or the Levites, a priest of the order of Melchizedek, who is eternal, that priesthood necessitates a change in law and the change in law is not to be understood as God going back in his word but rather a change in how the law is administered and how the law is to be understood and that change in law necessitates in chapter 8 the last verse verse 13 and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. We understand that Christ, when he came, he announced his gospel ministry just as John the Baptist did, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And those things which are at hand are not far away, right? If something is at hand, it's within your grasp. Jesus announced the coming of his kingdom. He ushered in the coming of his kingdom. He gave his apostles authority over evil spirits and sicknesses. They went through all the towns of Israel, proclaimed the gospel, proclaimed the coming reign of Christ, and then saw various fruits. And Jesus, standing on a mountain in the book of Luke, he says, I beheld Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And this beginning fall that Satan takes uh, takes on in the book of Luke is really the restoration of those trapped sheep within the house of unrighteous Israel who were being delivered from iniquity, delivered from the power of Satan, delivered from the evil influences of the religious leaders of their day, and being restored to righteousness with God. And so Jesus sends people throughout the entire nation, and he begins to call and gather a new assembly that will replace and will be a restoration of the initial assembly which has been corrupted. Verse uh, Chapter 10 also highlights this idea as well as verse uh, chapter 11. One of the ideas that I want to touch on briefly in chapter 11, I promised when we were in chapter 11 that we would get there today uh, when we got to the, the end of the book. When Abraham is looking for a city, he's looking for a city whose builder and maker is God, and he's not able to find that city. And the question is whether or not Abraham now has found that city. The question to you that I'm putting to you to think about is whether or not Abraham is still a stranger and an alien, or whether Abraham, along with us, has found the city that God was uh, was sending the the answer is what do you believe Christ said on the cross when he said it is finished? Did Christ merely accomplish an atonement, or did Christ not also institute the changing of the guards a one generation overlap between what was passing away and was ready to be destroyed and what was coming on the scene, the new assembly in the spirit of God, which is the group of Christians known as the body of Christ. I believe it's the latter. Christ, when he says it is finished, immediately the heavens and the earth shake, the heavens are turned to darkness, the earthquake takes place, and then what takes place in the temple is the undoing of of the order which God established. God placed a veil by by the instruction through Moses. He placed a veil between the outer holy place and the inner holy place, the holy of holies. And when Christ dies, not only is the priesthood removed at his crucifixion and trial, but also the temple itself is shown as being about to be rended or torn in half. The veil is torn from top to bottom, and the reason the writers of the gospel include the description top to bottom is because there is something that is happening from heaven, To the earth, it is not as if one of the disciples went into the holy of holies, understood the prophecies, and secretly tore the veil in order to say Christ's atonement was the real atonement. No, it says that the veil was torn from top to bottom. This this mirrors exactly what takes place with the priesthood. Remember when the high priest is conducting the evil trial over Christ? What does he do when Christ says that he is indeed the Son of God? He tears his his robe. And the high priest was not allowed to tear his robe, lest he remove himself from the priesthood. These are God's signs in showing that something major is taking place. We've seen it all through Hebrews. It is all throughout the rest of the New Testament, but I think it comes into stark relief here in chapter 13. As I said, I'm so encouraged to be able to uh, to finish this series and to see really how it impacts what Christians are supposed to be doing on mission. So my I'll, I'll show my cards now. My proposal is that Abraham has come into the city of God. And, and the reason why I think that's true is because at the end of chapter 11, it says that all these, verse 39, and all these, the patriarchs of old, though commended through their faith, did not yet receive what was promised, since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What I believe that is saying is, though all the patriarchs of old died in faith and were righteous, judged righteously by God based on their belief in the promises, the final promise, the sending of, of the Christ and the Messiah, the true atonement, was not yet revealed, but at his revelation and the completion of the atonement, they were grafted into the true church as though they were members apart and they were inaugurated at that time. As he says, that apart from us, they might not be made perfect. And yet he has the audacity to call saints holy ones, perfect ones. So, nevertheless, I want to look at this chapter, now that we've seen a little bit of the context of it, I want to look at this chapter as instructions for life in the church. And this context of the commands for obedience within the church and the warnings against apostasy will inform what we understand about the core part of this chapter, verse 14. And I want to impress upon you... Lend your mind and attention to these verses, especially when we get to verse, verses 10 through 15. It's important that you understand the Hebrew writer's argument so that you don't um, get tripped up or hijacked in your understanding of what verse 14 is saying. So after looking for the commands for obedience in the church, I want to look at the final warning of apostasy that's given. This is the fourth or fifth large categorical warning against apostasy and how this is actually a major element of Christian harmony and union uh, among the various churches. I want to look at union with Christ in reproach as being the context for that idea of the city which is not lasting versus the city which will last and is lasting. And then finally he closes the letter with a final command to obedience to church letters and an exhortation which is one of my favorite exhortations in the New Testament. So having demonstrated the kingdom in the earlier chapters which has been brought about, the writer shows how we are to live in that kingdom. He addresses namely five important elements, charity, that is giving or being kind to others, hospitality, mercy, marriage, and godly contentment. Wherever you see five in the scriptures or a group of five things, it usually is indicating the work of man, either the work of Adam, the work of Abraham, the work of a redeemed man within the community of God. So it's not, uh, it's not surprising that it comes in a five-fold command, brotherly love, hospitality, those who are uh, treating those who are in prison, marriage, and then finally greed. So each of these commands to virtue and prohibitions against vice are necessary, public, and visible. You cannot simply love God in your heart and never have it leak out. The, the fatal understanding of the Christian faith that leads one to conclude that it doesn't matter what I do externally, it just matters what reality is in my heart, is an erroneous position. That's what the whole chapter of Hebrews 11 was saying, which we saw in great clarity that by faith, Abraham was able to believe. And in fact, his obedience of faith incorporated within it a microcosm of the gospel. When God told Abraham to sacrifice his only son, the son of promise, he obeyed knowing, and it says that he considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead. Abraham had resurrection faith, though he had not yet seen it with his own eyes. So the nature of God's world, therefore, as Hebrews 11 was testifying, and as Hebrews 13, the writer is commanding us, is that beliefs become manifest through action. What you truly believe about something ultimately will be revealed about what is going on. Jesus said this when he was discussing various foods. He says, what goes into a man is not what makes him clean, but rather what proceeds out of his mouth, because out because the mouth speaks out of the abundance which fills the heart, and out of the heart come envies, jealousies, idolatries, adulteries. These various things that Jesus is talking about are the fruit of lips. They're the fruit of someone whose heart is not yet washed by the Spirit. And so each of these, each of these commands, Ultimately, not only include your personal holiness, but are directly tied to the mission of the church as she spreads the gospel in her witness to the world. Hospitality to strangers is one of the chief means of interacting with those who are still outside the church. This is vitally important. In an age where we are increasingly becoming alienated from our neighbors, hospitality, opening your home to the poor, opening your home to your actual neighbors, not just your metaphorical neighbors. If you're looking for who your neighbor is, just go home and look on the left and the right of your house. And those are the people that you should be reaching out to. And those people, those strangers and aliens to the life of the church are able to be witnessed to most effectively in your home. The reason why that is, is because they will see you, whether you're single and living with a group of people or married and living with your spouse and your children, they will see your authentic witness. They will understand the gospel as it begins to bear fruit in your relationships over time they'll begin to get the smell of a redeemed house if you will those who are most zealous for public witness are most likely to suffer imprisonment for the faith i am not convinced that he's talking about remember everyone in prison as if you have to give equal consideration to those who are prisoners but rather he says since you also are in the body He's not talking about some sort of metaphysical, like you have to have human solidarity with them, though that is a good and right thing to do. He's saying to understand within the context of the the letters that are written to the churches that through the persecution, many of them who were bold and public in their witness would fall under prison. They would fall under uh, under judgment. They'd be arrested and tried, usually under various, you know, somewhat, nebulous laws, they would be put into prison, and this was vital for the church to uphold the zeal of those who were put into prison based on their faith. Now, whether or not you believe Paul wrote this letter, that's beside the point, but it certainly would be fitting, as many of the apostles, especially Paul, were routinely jailed for the faith. And so in order to establish zeal in the church, we have to rally around and champion those who are most likely to be um, imprisoned for it. Marriage is to be honored as obedience to God. Second, as protecting the context for godly children. We've looked at that in in, uh, the book of Malachi chapter four. And third, as a living and prophetic parable to the world. Your marriage, if you are in a marriage, whether you are a husband or a wife, your goal is to be a living and prophetic parable to the outside world. You, if you are a husband, are are testifying of what Christ does with each action that you take with regard to your wife. Likewise, wives, you are testifying about the obedience of the bride. And we ought to understand this as not only God's metaphor to us, that we would understand his great love for his bride, but also in how we live before outsiders. It is not just a pietistic or It's not just a spiritual aspect of life that you have to live a godly marriage for your own benefit. So much of uh, modern marriage coaching is focused on 12 steps to a better marriage. And it's sold and packaged, and in fact, the entire content is focused on you getting more enjoyment out of your marriage. Now, I do not believe that God wants you to not enjoy your marriage, but whether you are enjoying it or not, you are commanded to a godly and righteous obedience to be a prophetic and living parable to outsiders. Lives that are given over to greed and devotion to the accumulation of wealth are distractions from the true point of life. He says, do not be filled with the love of money. And so the the idea here is that this is distracting from mission. All of these commands are within the context of the church on her mission. And then finally, leaders of the church, if they have a good outcome, are supposed to be models and templates. He says, consider their outcome and imitate their faith. The point is this that you should begin to find Christian leaders who have righteous examples. If they don't have righteous examples but are filled with marks of sin, then. Perhaps you shouldn't be going to that church, but rather you should find a group of people that you can emulate. This we're going to see verse 7 is repeated in verse 17 after kind of the, the meat of the chapter. The point is this, that you have to have some leaders that you actually know in order to emulate them. And we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. So after showing how those in the church are ought to obey, the writer offers a final warning against turning to the doctrines of men. Now, at this point, it's slightly confusing as to what he is decidedly talking about. For us, this doesn't make much sense immediately, but I'm actually convinced that as we are beginning to see a waxing, or sorry, a waning of the gospel, a diminishment of the gospel as it approaches life, even within the church, we're beginning to see a cultural level creep in of devotion to foods that is exactly like the paganism of the first century that the writer is combating. And whether or not you have a particular understanding in mind, uh, I believe that somewhat of the neo-spirituality that attends to the modern devotion to foods is the exact same thing as he's warning about. So there's two possible meanings. He could be talking about the Jewish purity laws, which I think are clearly in view based on the context of the chapter and the audience to whom the, the letter is written, but also the notion that there were in the days of... of uh, the various cults of, of the Roman Empire, there were there were times where they would purchase meat, they would take it to a demon god idol, they would offer a portion of that meat on the idol, and then they would partake in eating of that meat as a celebration, a pagan communion, if you will, with the gods. And this we see, the, the reason we have context is not just historical understanding of, of various historians, but also Paul himself addresses this problem, which was, absolutely manifest in the church at Corinth. And so I believe that he could be talking about either one. And in fact, each of them have the same core at the center of them. Wisdom in healthy eating is not sinful. Again, I think some of what is going on today with this uh, resurrection of, you know, kind of food purity laws that are mostly um Oprah-fied, if you will, not... <laughs> not um, They're not not sold with doctrine and verses all the time, but occasionally they are. Now, in saying that, I'm not saying that you shouldn't eat in a healthy manner. Lord knows, I myself wish that I would eat in a healthy manner. The point is not whether or not you eat in a healthy manner, but whether your heart trusts in that as justifying you and making you a better person. And one of the things that I, I find interesting is satire is usually so helpful in identifying the over-excesses. I, I'm reminded of a video that someone shared with me, and the video is just a, a guy who makes satirical videos. And in the video, instead of being a vegan or a vegetarian, he behaves as if he was a meat or just a carnivore, and he goes around saying various things that vegetarians would say, but in the context of meat, like, you know, did you know that that broccoli will kill you? And you know how could you end the life of that plant you know that was food for a cow and all of these things are it, it's a it's a satirical point to poke fun at how much you know, quasi-new spirituality, which I think is is actually a resurrection of paganism that is invested into these systems. So he says, do not be led away by diverse or strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. If you've never met a person like that, I actually knew someone who was extremely religiously devoted to what he ate. And he was... Uh, extremely judgmental about other people he he would go around telling people that they smell like meat eaters and that they were going to die and st- tragically I mean he was a, he was a friend, and so I say this with no glee in my heart. He actually died of a medical condition because he gave himself over to such a crazy diet and that flies in the face of modern science, what we understand about nutrition, but he was convinced radically that this was. Ideal for him. And sadly, he's, I mean, I, you know, I I miss him. He was a good friend. The point is that those things, that devotion to an external system of behavior and eating, does not profit at the end of the day. But the question is why do these things exist? Do people just inherently have some weird ideas about food? No, I believe they exist because the image of God is imprinted on every man. Man, as the image bearer of God, was made to have communion with God. We see this at the beginning in the garden. God would come down in the cool of the day and talk with Adam and Eve. Man was made to fellowship with God. One of my favorite passages in the book of Exodus is when the 70 elders, Moses and Aaron, they ascend to the mountain of the Lord and they eat with God. Now, what's so beautiful is this this takes place in the in the glory cloud which surrounded the mountain. And this is exactly a picture of what communion is supposed to be in the church. So being inescapably religious, whether or not someone tells you they're religious or not, they are religious, everyone is religious, they just may not understand how they are religious, all men establish at least some spiritual import on the food they eat. And if not food, then the work that they do, or the political opinions they hold, or whatever— Everyone who is not trusting and resting in Christ is finding something to trust in. We are idol factories, as John Calvin said. We, we, Our heart makes idols. It produces them. And if we destroy one and do not turn to Christ, we produce another in its place. Perhaps in your own life, before you turn to Christ, you might have been able to see a little evidence of stopping one bad behavior only to discover another one has popped up in its place. We are idle factories. And so, man being inescapably religious always assigns some spiritual importance to his food. If you look at the religions of the world, Islam has very strict food regulations. Hinduism also has very strict food regulations. Uh, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that today or yesterday was the celebration of Gandhi's birth in India. And, And one of the things that celebrated Gandhi's movement was veganism and and he, he celebrated this as a core tenet of what it meant to be a righteous modern Indian. Food laws are always a part of every religion. The difference, however, is not based on the import you place versus the import you don't place, but rather whether or not the food idolater is justifying himself based on the choices of food, whereas the Christian is implicating himself when he comes to the table. By you coming to the table today, you are saying Christ's death was necessary for me. Not only have I been invited to the table by Christ himself, inaugurating the new covenant at the the Last Supper, he not only inaugurates the new covenant and invites you, but as Paul says, every time we eat of it, we proclaim the Lord's death. And the idea here is that as coming to the member of the table, you're not justifying yourself by the food you eat. You're testifying against yourself. I needed the blood of God. I needed to be atoned with an atonement that was perfect and worthy and glorious and beautiful, an atonement which I could not acquire, a a type of food which I could not find. This is what it means, and I believe the writer actually is intending to make that argument because of of verse 9 and verse 10. So Christian communion is a visible testimony to the unity and purity of the church, and even though that there are those outside the faith who have no right to eat, some try to sneak in. Nevertheless, any Christian who withholds himself from other brothers and sisters, supposing them to be unworthy, actually testifies against himself, separates himself from Christ. This is what Paul was talking about in the book of Galatians. He says he came down to Jerusalem and some men from James had come and they started Judaizing the church in Jerusalem at the time, saying, not only do you need to trust in Christ, you also need to be circumcised and you need to observe of the festival laws and you need to observe the food purity laws. And Paul publicly rebuked Peter in open court in the church. And he said that he was condemning those brothers and therefore saying that Christ himself was not enough to atone. Christ was not enough to create a social harmony within the people of God. And so Paul said that he stood condemned. As in, when Paul got there, he didn't even have to make an argument because the nature of the Christian faith was so well understood and the implications of Peter's sin was so clear that he just had to announce it. And Peter received the rebuke and repented at, the, at that moment. The point is this, that Christ and what he did in instituting the new meal his body, his blood, has brought together his people in a harmony that transcends ethnic boundaries, it transcends external obedience boundaries, it transcends all those things which Paul in various places called the elemental principles of the age, the elemental ideas that you could be justified by doing something of your own making. So those brothers, supposed brothers, who separate themselves based upon the food laws were lying about their fellow brothers and in the end cutting themselves off from Christ. That is exactly what the Hebrew writer is saying in verse 9 and 10. Don't go back to that from what you left. Don't return back to Judaism as it's being practiced today. The real Judaism is eating at the right altar, the new altar, which we see in verse 10. So therefore, the writer's warnings about food are absolutely concerning apostasy. He's not talking about a salad versus a cheeseburger. He's talking about those who revert from Christ, renounce Christ in doing so, and turn to seeking to establish their own righteousness by their eating. So we ought not to to return to asceticism, whether it be the form of Judaism or the form of the Greek religions, because we have a right to eat from the altar. That's what he says in verse ten. Uh, verse nine, do not do this, for verse ten, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. And he connects it to the, the true sacrifice. He says in verse 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest are a sacrifice for sin and are burned outside the camp. This is kind of an a interesting move that the writer does in his argument, but he's moving from a social evil or a spiritual evil coming against the church. He dismantles it, and in doing so, he demonstrates the righteousness of Christ in it. That's what it means for the gospel to touch every aspect of life. That is, when there is a sin in a culture that's rampant and and accepted, the Christians ought to expose those things, demonstrate them as fruitless, and then show what the truth actually is. And so he does that, and he connects it to what's going on in the church. So he says the bodies of the animals are brought outside the camp versus those who are inside the camp. Now, if you're not familiar with this, this was the law given for the scapegoat, for the sin offering, that after the conference of guilt by the placing of hands, either by the the one who committed the sin or by the priest, after conferring guilt by placing the hand on the animal, the animal was then sent outside the wilderness and it was burned outside the camp because it was God's way of saying that the iniquity which is supposed to come on the camp if it came on the camp while everyone was still there, it would destroy the camp, but rather the scapegoat is sent out the the goat for the sin offering is sent out so that it could be judged and not destroy all those who were around it. This is exactly what we see in Sodom, gomorrah, egypt Babylon over and over again, the destruction of sin within a culture destroys the people, and God made a provision saying that through the sin offering, testifying of his son, that he would go outside the gates of the city and be crucified there. Verse seven or verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Do you see what he's doing with that word so? He's connecting verse 11 to verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Now, at this point, the very next verse is what I was saying earlier, the most, perhaps, the most misquoted, maybe John 3.16, but that's a, different, that's a different story for a different day. Uh, this verse is perhaps one of the most misquoted in the New Testament because of a idea which is that Christianity is mostly a religion about going to heaven versus going to hell. Christianity is by far focused on the eternal state of those who either die outside the faith, who die in their sin, versus those who are redeemed by Christ. Absolutely, Christianity includes that. But it was never intended as to be this sort of proposition that you agree to or don't agree to, live your life with minimal social interaction, and then have some sort of understanding of where you go when you die. Verse 14 is vitally important. And so remembering the nature of the sin offering, the writer considers how Christ was crucified outside the gate and then delivers an imperative command or a strong command, a necessary command that for those who are in the church who are supposed to be on mission with Christ, that we ought to go where he is. And so the question is, what is uh, what is this geography that he's talking about? I believe this phrase, for here we have no lasting city, is the most misquoted, perhaps, in the New Testament. And it's often taken as indicating the Christian's need to be heavenly-minded, which is a true and right thing in the New Testament, but it does not mean that you are abstaining from all earthly activities or any sort of witness to the world or any attempt to establish righteousness in law, in business, in finance, in art. The Christian flight from reality is beginning to be evidenced as a major misstep And we're beginning to bear the fruit of that in our own culture. I want to ask you a question. Can you name 10 sermons that you have heard in your life, if you're a churchgoer, that talk about how to know whether a law is righteous or unrighteous? Have you ever heard a sermon that discussed the nature of theology in art and culture? Maybe one, but 10 over the course of years? Have you been trained like the devotion that lawyers and doctors have to understanding how Christ being king over all nations has a word to speak to all nations? I'm convinced that the flight from reality that has gone on in most of the Christian church in America in this century is beginning to show signs of decay such that we may not recover. And if we do recover, it will only be, be because of an intentional reformation brought out by the Holy Spirit of God as he renews the church, shows her the error of her ways, and breathes once again new life into her. And brothers and sisters, although our country looks bleak at the moment, uh, you don't have to fear. Christ is still reigning. Whether or not America will be judged like Rome, like Babylon, like Egypt, is, that's not up for us to decide. Our job is to build, work, invest, plant, and sow the seeds of the gospel, and to go deep, and to build good foundations. There is nothing worth doing that is not worth doing badly, as I believe that was uh, G.K. Beale. But at the same token, there is nothing worth doing that isn't worth doing forever. That is to say, establish true Christian churches, establish true Christian schools, invest, build. You cannot reap a harvest without sowing. So let's examine what I think is the problem in this verse. In this paradigm, the lasting city is not considered to be any particular city, but is understood metaphorically as the current human existence on the planet. Now this is kind of heady stuff, but believe me, you're, you're capable of understanding this. This is vitally important to you. In this verse... It said, here we have no lasting city. And when most of us read that, we think here on earth. But I believe the writer has a different context entirely. The interpretation completely disregards the immediate context to the commands of faithful obedience in the church, both before this passage and after this passage in verse 15 to the close of the chapter. And it misses the larger aim of the letter. The entire letter, as we've been seeing week by week in our series, is a masterful treatise. It's a doctoral level engagement with the Old Testament scriptures in order to show two things. The person and work of Christ, the sufficiency and exclusivity of his priesthood, and the effect of his atonement. And the effect of his atonement was a changing of the guards in the administration of the covenant, such that the old was marked as passing away and the new was being inaugurated and would soon be unveiled in complete clarity. Because of Christ's atonement, the new covenant is established and the old, as we saw in Hebrews 8, is becoming obsolete and growing old and is ready to vanish away. Verse 12, so Jesus suffered outside the gate, therefore let us go Outside the camp, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city which is to come. Now, think about the geography. You have a group of people in a locale, and they're inside the gate, and it says that Jesus went outside the gate, and we're going to ask some questions about what that means. Jesus went outside the gate to suffer just as the scapegoat did. In his missiological endeavor, his mission to the earth required him to leave that city to suffer. And so we also ought to join him where he is. And that demonstration I think is quite clear. And I think we can understand this by asking the right sort of questions in the text. If you go back to verse 10, if you want to get out your Bibles, that may help you if you want to pay attention and see the context. In verse 10, who are those who have no right to eat from the table, from the true table? And the question is very clear that it's it's written here in the, the scriptures. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. That phrase, those who serve the tent, is talking about the Aaronic priesthood serving in the tabernacle and temple system. At that day, it was Herod's temple, not uh, the tabernacle. And even though they serve in Herod's temple, they are excluded from the altar because they are not children who share in the flesh and blood. Children who, ha- who share in the flesh and blood have a right to eat from the flesh and blood. That's, that's what Hebrews 2 was talking about, how there are those who are true sons and daughters of Abraham and those There are those who are not. Do you remember Jesus when he was interacting with the Pharisees? He said, do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. Now, why did he say that? What he said is that their spiritual condition, the way that they were sinning with their lives, was belying the fact that they were actually children of the devil and not children of Abraham. And in fact, Jesus says that to them directly. You are children of your father, the devil. He was a liar from the beginning. And so he's identifying the difference between those who have a right to eat and those who don't have a right to eat. Those who do not have a right to eat are those who serve the temple. And the next question is, where was Christ crucified? We know the answer. He was crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem as the sin offering for the people, offering himself not in Herod's temple because it had been corrupted at this time, but offering himself by the spirit in the true heavenly temple. That's the whole point of The core section of Hebrews is that Christ made an atonement in the spiritual temple because the earthly temple was not sufficient. And then why should we go out to meet Christ? Why should believers who endure persecution associated with joining the church in her mission, why should they go out? It is a twofold answer, namely, first, on the basis of solidarity with Christ and his mission, but also because the city of Jerusalem had been renounced and marked as destroyed it had been announced beforehand that they ought to leave that city. And Christ himself actually said that there would be a time where it would be said to those who are in Judea to flee to the mountains because there was a judgment coming of Christ against the city. And when I, when I see him say, for here, in the context of the verses, he's talking about that region which Christ had to leave in order to suffer outside the gate. The city which is not the lasting city in these verses is the earthly Jerusalem. It's the one which is filled with a corrupt priesthood and those who have rejected the true priest. And the true city, the heavenly Jerusalem, is that which came down from heaven, was founded on the witness or martyr of the church uh, and the, the apostles of the church, and comes down only after the removal of the city of sin. When I hear him say, for here we have no lasting city, I believe him to be giving the final nail in the coffin on his major argument, which is, if you revert back to Judaism or any other religious system, you cut yourself off from Christ and you will be judged for it. That, I believe, is what he's saying, for here in Judea we have no lasting city. Why is this of any importance? Why does this make sense? Why does this, even if it doesn't make sense immediately, why is it necessary to understand the difference? That when he says, for here we have no lasting city, he's not talking about on earth there's never going to be any progress in the kingdom of God being manifest. The reason why that's important is I want you to consider the way that Christians are motivated to obedience the way that they are motivated to obedience is by trusting in the promises of God. I want you to imagine for example for for just a second two different scenarios. I want you to think about this at one point. The entire chapter is filled with imperatives to tho- to Godly obedience and charity for those inside the church. Those are the contextual bookends if you will for his major point which is that we have no lasting city here but we are seeking a city which is to be revealed and they in this time were waiting for the revealing of that city. That was future to them and now is past to us. And and we see this take place quite clearly. But I want you to consider I want you to consider two various alternatives. I want you to think about it like this. If one believes that we have no lasting city, this side of the final judgment, then how will one resolve to work for the growth of the city? Because it's not even here yet. If you believe that the city which comes down out of heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem, of which Paul said you and I are already members of, we are, of our chi- uh, we are children of our mother in heaven, when he's talking about the earthly versus spiritual uh, Jerusalem, how will you work for establishing the righteousness of a city which doesn't exist and cannot exist until the final day of all things? How will you be motivated to work? Because it's not even ever going to be here. You would be, in fact, in that interpretation, you would be competing against the promises of God. Because in that interpretation, the heavenly Jerusalem which comes down only comes down after everything else, after the second coming, after the final judgment, and is therefore not going to show up in any measure here. Now, after imagining that motivation, look at what the motivation that I believe the context is calling us to. On the contrary, consider how staunch the Christian will be who is working for the purity of the bride, who is already come down, is already established as the bride of Christ on the earth, and establishing her righteousness and pursuing her holiness. So that is my major idea of verse 14. The the, the here is not a here on earth, because he's writing to a group of Christians, Judean Christians, as the entire book is focusing on, and he's, he's giving them an invocation to make sure they do not renounce and turn from Christ. He then goes on to say in verse 15, through him being outside that city in the new city, through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. Finally, at the end of the chapter, really the end of the, the entire epistle, he gives some commands to obey leaders. And this, I think, is very important, especially because our church is filled with so many young people who I absolutely love and am friends with. But when you are in college, you are tempted occasionally. Many of you, this doesn't apply to you, but perhaps it will at some point in your life. Many are tempted to be okay with major seasons of your life in which you are not fulfilling the commands of Christ. That is, I believe that Christ himself is saying in verse 17, to obey your leaders. I believe that 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, all scripture is inspired by God or spirated. It's breathed out by the Holy Spirit and is profitable for rebuke, exhortation, and training in righteousness. I believe that that means you have to obey your leaders. And that doesn't just mean in a categorical sense, like I'm not openly rebelling or I'm not you know, publicly denouncing the teaching of our leaders. It means to, to adopt a mission. It means to be on mission with a group of people. And I believe that it's clear from, from two ways. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I am blessed by God to have very little groaning. I have some groaning, but very little groaning in this church because we, we take this to heart. But I want you to think about the two-fold way in which this is impossible for those who are outside of the church. I take this as a very clear and explicit command to join a group of people, a identifiable congregation that you fellowship with routinely— And the reason is this, how can you obey your leaders if you do not know who they are? And then you can work that out. It begins, the the insanity of such a position begins to show itself. How do you determine, if you don't have a particular congregation, who your leaders are? And then once you find, okay, well, I'm going to follow everyone on the Gospel Coalition blog. How do you then determine which one of them you agree with when they disagree? You see, the church was not made to be you sitting at home with an internet connection watching YouTube sermons. That was not God's vision for the church. I love YouTube sermons. i probably watch more of them than you have. But I don't, I don't keep myself from connecting with a group of people because of verses like this. Do not neglect the assembling together of the body as is the habit of some. And in fact, he actually says that those people who do, they're putting themselves on the fringes of the grace of God. So obey your leaders and submit to them. That's the first part is how would you know who your leaders are? And the second part is this, how could a Christian leader give account for someone that they literally do not know exists? When you watch a video or a sermon on YouTube or start following a pastor on Twitter and you think that you're just going to disciple yourself at home, that person does not get a notification from YouTube saying that they did or did not watch the sermon this week you are commanded to give yourself a context in which you can obey leaders. And then from there, leaders who know your name, that they can pray for you and give account for you. It is no uh, easy cakewalk being a leader in the church. Not only are you routinely praying for your entire flock, but you're also praying about pretty much every aspect of their life, everything that goes right or wrong. You're either giving thanks or petitioning for grace. And you have to be able to know who your flock is. Otherwise, it just doesn't make any sense. How could I lift up the flock by name if I don't know their names? So Christians are not told to just obey, but also to pray for those who exercise oversight. Look at this. The, the Hebrew writer says in verse 18, "...pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things." Verse 19, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Christian obedience and praying for leaders closes the gap in the maturity of the mission of the church. He says that if they pray for him, that there will be something unlocked in the grace of God that will facilitate circumstances, that he will be restored to them. This is again another indictment of the church. I think we have such weak leaders on a national political level in the church because we have a church that doesn't mandate church membership and therefore praying for our leaders. Nevertheless, in this exhortation, we see the final reminder of the commission of all in the church as those who are living sacrifices. Verse 20, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen, let's close. Father, we thank you for your mighty word. We ask you that you would deliver us from depressive or depressing, pessimistic views of the future, that we would see your mighty call to obedience in the church and that we would have grace from you, Holy Spirit, that you would give us not only understanding, but a will to do these things. We pray, Lord, that you would tame our tongue, that we would not be accusative of others, but at the same time, Lord, we would not allow sin to remain. We pray that you would show us the gangrene of compromise for what it is, that we would see you, Jesus Christ, as being the head of the church, and therefore, as those who are a part of your body, that we would see ourselves as accountable to you, that we aren't just doing Christianity how we want. Lord, I pray that you would give us a deep hunger for the New Testament, as well as the old, that we would be able to understand what the Hebrew writer is saying to your people. God, we pray that you would restore to your church once again the idea that you, Jesus Christ, as we see in Revelation, have a sword which proceeds out of your mouth, and in Psalm 2, the iron rod which you have, which rules the nations. We pray that you would give us this understanding, that we would not tremble and fear when we see the enemies of you Uh, prop their little heads up, that, that we would still be confident in knowing that you are reigning on the throne, and you're bringing out your intended purposes, and you will fulfill your mission on the earth, even through your people. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.